In the darkness of space, strange things happen. Strange things happen. You received an incoming fast radio burst through the automated space frequency scanning system. A communications team led by Dr. Milos Laban soon discovered that the fast radio bursts were set apart at regular intervals and that the intercepted signals began to formulate a definite pattern which in turn presented a mathematical formula. In effect, a cryptographic code that when correlated with sonic equivalents formed an intelligible audible broadcast message, vocalized utterances that incredibly appear to have been transmitted by a non-human sentient life form. It was this realization of all that determined the outcome of the choice we have made. Humanity could not be trusted to properly manage this new and powerful knowledge ostensibly being presented to us. At the same time, we ourselves are only human. Our curiosity had been aroused and our passions driven with thirst for knowledge that must be sated. We came to the decision that we ourselves, and we alone, must sever all communications with planet Earth. We would undertake the journey to please 625B. We would acquire the new knowledge, and we would deny it to the human species as a whole. We maintain the tentative hope that one day, when we have absorbed and comprehended the intellectual concussions of what we will learn, we may return to the hub of our species with an aim to sharing the facts and insights such as we have acquired them. Until that time, as we project ourselves into the precincts of outer space and avail ourselves of the prospect of its dismal wonders, we take to the skies with our deepest foresight Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. My name is Matt, and in this episode, Justin Pearl and I pick up our conversation with Jeffrey Krypal, who we spoke with towards the beginning of the summer. Uh, You're welcome, of course, to go back and check that out if you haven't already, but it's not really crucial. We talked about some different things this time around, focusing mainly on a discussion of aliens and UFOs and related matters. It was a lot of fun and a genuine pleasure speaking with Jeff again. Jeffrey is the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University and is the Associate Director of the Center for Theory and Research at the Esalon Institute in Big Sur, California. He's previously taught at Harvard Divinity School and Westminster College and is the author of eight books, including his most recent project called The Flip, Epiphanies of Mind and the Future of Knowledge. I think he has another forthcoming book that I... Here, let me look it up real quick. Yeah, he's got a book coming out called The Superhumanities, Historical Precedents, Moral Objections, New Realities. That's coming out this month. No shit. Okay, we're going to have to have him back to talk about that. Just a quick update on the Radical Theology Seminar. We're on a sort of a late summer break, so we've hit pause on Patreon. Just a heads up when we come back, we're going to reformat things in a way that I think should be better for everyone. We've been struggling with the synchronous nature of the seminars and all the different time zones, and there might be a better way to do it. So stay tuned for that announcement. 
for those of you who are a sucker for nostalgic uh, orchestral rock music dealing with UFO themes, you'll want to stick around to the end of the episode. I was poking around the internet looking for some music to include, and I found what I think is an amazing song uh, that I wasn't I wasn't previously aware of. I've actually been listening to it a lot. I just like I can't get it out of my head. And it's from a band you've probably at least heard of. Um, so anyway, that's all I've got. Here's Jeffrey Kripal. Peace. You're an uh, Iron Man fan, I see. Yeah, that's an old, yeah, I think it's a cool. Does it do something? Or is it just Not a really. bust? It's just a um, bust, yeah. I, wait, I've got an Iron Man nearby. Hold on. I want to join the club. Hold on. I got my uh, son this Lego kit. I don't know if you see it. There oh, he is. Boy. Yeah, that's a, that's a little one. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, well, it's not it's not always about the size. <laughs> that's what they say. That's what they say. Um, oh, Justin's here. Let me let me in. Hello. Hey, man. How's it going? Thanks for uh, joining us again. Yeah, thanks for moving it up a half hour. It just helps my commute. Absolutely. No worries. Are you home or are you in a library? I'm actually in my office at Rice. Okay. So. Yeah, I just I saw all the books, which is kind of normal for you know academics to kind of show off their goods, you know. <laughs> um, but the drop ceiling was kind of threw me off. Yeah, it's one of those. Yep. All right. But yeah, you do any um, traveling this summer? Any do anything fun? Not really. People ask me about fun all the time. I say, I don't have <laughs> What is that? <laughs> yeah, I don't even know. But they ask you, do you have hobbies? I'm like, I don't, I don't have a hobby. I, do I need a hobby? It's that, that kind of thing. Right. And yeah, the anxiety ensues. I need a hobby. <laughs> I, th- yeah, I think, I think you need a hobby if you hate what you do, but mm. if, you, if you really like what you do, why do you need a hobby to distract you from whatever it is you do? That's my that's my rationalization for not having a, a hobby. <laughs> yeah, it's your rationalization and my condemnation. So this is this is why this is my hobby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, good. There you go. So we we serve both. We've served both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if that's true, the fact that I have like four hobbies is not a great sign for my job. <laughs> no, that's not a good sign. <laughs> yeah, it's another it's another discussion. Vacations um, vacations often depress me. By the way. Oh. A similar issue, yeah. What's that? Vacations from what again? And you know, they're they're exhausting. Well, I mean, sure. I, I definitely notice a difference when I spend a week in Disney World dragging my kid around 90 degrees <laughs> 90 degrees all day long as compared to kind of just cooling out on the beach in Maine. How but old's your kid? He'll he'll be six in about a month or so. So yeah. He might remember Disney. Disney World. Might. He better because we're not going back. <laughs> I mean, I hope yeah, not. I know. That's kind of an iffy age, though, in terms of memory. I have like uh, three memories from when I was five, but we didn't go to Disney World. So maybe I would have had more if we had. Oh, <laughs> I can adopt you. We can take you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, let's not waste any more time. Let's get let's get down to business, I suppose. Um <laughs> So we're here to talk about UFOs. However, I failed to, I, I miss I missed out on something from last time uh, that I want to get to at the beginning here. So let me do, 
share screen. I want to, I want you to respond to something, Jeff. I think you know this guy. Hold on a second. I have genuinely no idea what you're about to put on the screen. Oh, really? You don't? That's that's great. It's terrifying for me. <laughs> hey, Jeff. Eric Davis here. Hope you're doing well. My question is how you have come to think about the role that intelligence agencies and the deep state more generally uh, play in the management of the perception, the public perception of the phenomenon and on a more sort of uh, archetypal uh, psycho-spiritual level, what role paranoia plays in the unfolding of the paranormal today? So, <laughs> nice well, late question to get us going. Yeah, we're jumping straight to the deep end, it seems. I know. Yeah, no, I mean, Eric asked, those are profound, particularly today, right? Um, so do you want me to try to answer, Eric? I mean, try. I mean, this is why this is why I got you the beer, frankly, so that because last time you said you can't be asking me like questions like this without beer. So I, I sent you some beer. So I don't want to hear your shit today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so there's really two questions there, right? There's the and I'm not sure I have satisfying answers to either of them, but the two okay. questions are what what is the relationship between the intelligence or military communities and the phenomenon and the other question is what is the relationship between the paranormal and paranoia right okay those are two different questions um the first one i think i can answer uh and eric's probably heard me give this answer i think a lot of particularly the ufo phenomenon to, to sort of move ahead is controlled by what i call the cold war invasion narrative and that has been deeply influenced by the military and the intelligence community and that's basically that the alien is essentially the outsider coming in to our sacred nation. I mean, the alien is a word that is used historically for an immigrant who's not supposed to be here, right? Uh, and in the Cold War, this, of course, was the Soviet Union that was not supposed to be inside our airspace. And so the alien invasion narrative, which you see reproduced over and over and over in Hollywood, is basically this Cold War invasion thing that the alien is the enemy. We have to push back. We have to punch him out. We have to fight back. I think that's a projection. I think that's a big mistake. Um, I don't think that's what the UFO phenomenon is about. I think it can be about that. It can be used in those directions, but I don't think it's inherently about that. The relationship between paranoia and the paranormal is a deeper question. It's really about conspiracy thinking. And the relationship between the paranormal and what we might call conspirituality or, or conspiracy thinking today, uh, the idea that, you know, essentially anything goes. My own gut feeling is that paranormal phenomena are deconstructive. Whatever your worldview is, they take it apart. And people who are attracted to conspiracy thinking generally don't like however the world is or how they perceive it to be. So they're attracted to paranormal ideas because they think or they intuit that these things can take the present world apart. The problem is, I think paranormal phenomena are also inherently creative and constructive, mm -hmm. and they're calling us to build new worlds, new mythologies, new cultures. And I think conspiracy thinking is really solely just deconstructive and a bit like a prank. Mm. Um, I think there's a prankish element to it. 
I don't think these people are truly serious about these ideas. They can't certainly can't establish them. And so you get a kind of deconstruction without any hope of reconstruction, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You know, to, to follow up on Eric's question, I, I partially blame academics for this. Um, I think a lot of postmodern theory is very deconstructive without any hope of reconstruction. We're really good at taking things apart. We're really bad at putting things back together. And in fact, there's a general rule, you should not put things back together. You can only take things apart. So I think that's a larger kind of intellectual context that goes back you know, 30 or 40 years uh, and is part of this. Yeah, I think what you're saying is, is right. It also occurs to me that maybe there's like a, a troubling ambiguity here as well in the sense that sure if you want to kind of connect this to larger like cultural political issues and and the the invocation of hope or something like this right where hopelessness equals deconstruction and i think that can circle or back onto a virulent form of of gnosis i'm just thinking of like paranoia etymologically right it's like out of mind <laughs> but this seems to kind of like map onto a lot of times a kind of gnosis. Like these people are crazy because they think they know shit. I don't, I don't know if there's something in there or if that's just like a semantic trick. I don't think it's a semantic trick. You know, I, I wrote this book years ago, Matt, called The Serpent's Gift. And the argument of the book is that there are these Gnostic currents in the study of religion. And that ancient Gnosticism was actually one of our earliest forms of suspicion and deconstruction, that it, it's essentially a rejection of the biblical view of God. Um, but these Gnostic traditions also had a transcendent God or a hidden Godhead that was, was real. And so they were deconstructing something to get to something bigger or better. And I think, again, what's wrong with our present intellectual environment is we don't have anything bigger to get to. We just deconstruct. So, you know, paranoia and the paranormal are related, not just etymologically, but, you know, essentially what the paranormal says is you're not just in your head and people outside your head can get into you. And this is essentially what paranoia is. It's a, it's a fear of, of incursion, right? It's a fear of hmm. other things and other presences being able to get inside one. And, and they do, and they can <laughs> uh, in, in this particular worldview. I mean, this is how you get possession. This is how you get telepathy. This is how you get all kinds of things that I think are very much related. Homophobia. I don't, I don't yeah, I don't think we're just in our heads. I, I don't think you're just in your head. I think we're, we're kind of spread out in the environment. And I, I think this connects to, you were talking a little bit about the um, alien narratives being primarily sort of a Cold War narrative, right? And I think that there is a, a sense in which, you know, the, the sort of classic example of this would be the invasion of the body snatchers, right? Where they're this sort of almost infectious nature of reality kind of mixes, I think, in certain ways with that Cold War mentality. On the one hand, you have the sort of um, uh, Independence Day, right? Where it's a very kind of full frontal, classically military style invasion. But then you have these other narratives where it's much more of a subtle. Um, so the thing I think would be another really good example of this, where where the thing that comes from the outside, what makes it particularly frightening is that you don't know where it is. You don't know who it is. And it can kind of mix mix into the culture. And, and I think there's a lot of politically interesting stuff that are happening in, in that kind of media, not just around, you know, Cold War anxieties around, you know, 
the the hidden communist next door or whatever. Um, but I think in contemporary thought, you could think of the ways that um, discourses around immigration, for example, get fed in, into this, you know, the scary other who's sneaking across the border and we don't see them coming and all of that. Um, so it does seem like there's these different kinds of fears are mixing and matching in really complex ways in, in alien narratives. I also think that this, I, I think we're approaching um, a time in which, you know, national boundaries and religious identities are not going to be very useful, to put it mildly. People are already starting to talk about mass migrations um, because of climate change. And of course, we can't migrate because we can't get across national borders because we have these fictions called national identities and we have passports and, you know, we have all kinds of things we've, we've just made up essentially to separate ourselves from one another. And all of that is going to become massively dysfunctional as the species needs to essentially migrate out of hotter climates into cooler climates. So I, I think that's, maybe that's in the far future, maybe that's in the near future, but I, it, it works against this, this invasion narrative, I guess is what I'm trying to say, which I think is a very nationalistic illusion, frankly. I think that it's a coincidence that at this moment where, as you're saying that the, these national boundaries seem like they're imminently going to be getting a lot more flexible, that it's in the same moment that you have this sort of resurgent right wing that really wants to get back to this nationalism, this sort of insistence on nationalism like 2015. Yeah, I, and I didn't say, and I don't mean that national boundaries are, are becoming flexible. I didn't mean intend that at all. I think the opposite is happening, but I think the opposite is happening because of these of these dynamics, and we are beginning to get hints that they're dysfunctional. They're just not going to work. Yeah, that that sort of fear of the other that we're talking about, as it becomes less and less sort of, um, let's just say, viable in certain in certain ways. There becomes more of a need for it psychologically, right? Yeah. So as people are people double down. They're like, well, the fear of the other becomes the need for the other. <laughs> yeah. The political translation of that, Matt, is that I mean, I, I've lived in urban areas and I've lived in rural areas, and there really is a political split between the rural and the urban in, mm. in the US. And generally, where cultural pluralism is on the rise is where you get you know, you, you try to get back to a cultural essentialism, essentially. Um, and I just, I think those patterns are, are overwhelming. And I just, I just, it's, it feels reactionary to me is what I'm trying to say. Um, and I think that's what you're saying. You had sent us over a few things to look at, and and there was a there's this one bit from one of the things you sent me about the uh, the Madonna, the UFO, yeah. the Madonna. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you want, you can backfill in some of the story if you want to. There's this one section I wanted to touch on because I think it raises a couple of really good fundamental questions when we talk about UFOs and stuff like this. I think the reason the art historian is so troubled by the ufological comparison is the same reason that the conventional scholar of religion is so troubled. Both the art historian and the scholar of religion are ideologically committed to a purely materialist history 
in which there can only be political, institutional, textual, and material influences, but never, ever, interventions out of space and out of time. It's, quote, only arts, or it is, quote, only power in politics, or it's, quote, only in the text, or it's, quote, only in the scholar's imagination. So let's go to find an obscure text that can explain away what we otherwise see in the painting. Let's do anything other than entertain the simple idea that 16th century Italians may have been like us and may have responded religiously to what tens of thousands of contemporary people see today and narrativize in very different mythological and cosmological codes. There's a lot in that. But the first thing I wanted to uh, ask you about was where you talk about these interventions that are out of space and out of time. I'm not entirely sure what you mean by that, because I can hear somebody thinking it's making a case for supernaturalism. And I don't know, maybe that is what you're doing, but I think it does at least kind of raise this question of supernaturalism or paranormal, which I think for conversations like this could be an important difference to, to draw out maybe. So this is a little essay I wrote. I, I happened to take a trip to Florence, Italy, and I was in a um, museum there in town, and I was looking for a particular painting. I think it's on the birth of St. John the Baptist or something like that. Nativity of John the Baptist, I forget what it's called. And um, when you stand and you look at this painting, it's not a large painting, but it, it it's very obviously a, a UFO in the sky. I mean, it it looks like something that could have been painted yesterday, you know, over Texas or, or New Mexico or something. And you can even see this shepherd and his dog looking at the UFO. So it's, it's not subtle, but the, the woman and the, the birth of the, the John the Baptist are looking away from it. And my argument in this piece is, why do we want to make a distinction between what's portrayed in that 16th century Italian painting and what people see today. It's, it seems to me it's the same thing. And yet they get coded in completely different ways. One gets coded in the context of Italian Catholicism and one gets coded in the context of American science fiction. And I'm just trying to ask the question, what, okay, what's the problem here? And I think I say what the problem is in the text you read. I don't mean to push a particular supernatural worldview, Matt. Supernatural was a category that was actually coined in the 13th century in Europe to really address the difference between marvels or anomalous things that happen around normal people. And, and so it was, it, was a, it was a category to determine who was a saint or not, who would be venerated as such after his or her death. And it literally means above the natural or outside the natural world. And the basic idea was, is that if this miracle is really from God, it comes from outside the natural world. It's not a function of natural causality or natural agency. It, it has it has divine agency. It's a true miracle. Right. But if it's if it's an anomaly inside the natural world, well, then it's just part of the natural world. So what? You know, weird, strange things happen all the time. But it's certainly no proof of sanctity or that God um, was blessing this particular person. The paranormal is coined in 1903, probably after an English word, supernormal, it came a few decades later. They were both designed to move away from the supernatural. They were arguing that these anomalous events are part of the natural world. They're, they're part of the, the, the world that science studies, but we just don't have the science yet to 
to model these these particular behaviors or these particular phenomena. So it's a very these are very different categories. When I'm talking about the UFO and the painting, I don't know if it's supernatural or paranormal. I mean, how would I know? I'm just trying to make an argument or a comment about how art historians and scholars of religion react to these sorts of things. And I'm not, by the way, pushing the view of a show like Ancient Aliens, where you just look at anything in the past you don't understand and you shove it into an ancient astronaut or an extraterrestrial box. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying we actually don't know what that thing in the sky is. We didn't know in the 16th century in Italy, and we don't know today. And we're going to invoke all these mythologies to pretend we know, but we really don't. But it's clearly the same thing. And that's what I meant from outside of space and time is that these things look just like they do now in the 16th century. So uh, temporality, historicity, culture is in some ways irrelevant to how these things appear, but they're not irrelevant, of course, into how they're interpreted. Can I, can I ask maybe from the, the other perspective, like, like from the other side, I should say, what's the gain? if we break from this traditional way, right? Uh, we, we shouldn't be thinking of this through the UFO category. We should be thinking of it through the religious category. If we avoid that trap, as you've sort of laid it out, what, what do we gain, you know, what interpretively or hermeneutically or whatever your preferred language here, what do we gain from that? Well, on the most basic level, we gain community. We are just like the Italian and the, Ital the Italians are just like us. We're both seeing strange things in the sky. Our dogs are seeing the same thing, for God's sake. Our freaking dogs. See it. It's there. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're in 16th century Italy or you're in 21st century America. Your dog's going to see the same damn thing. And so what we gain is a sense of, of humanity and commonality and, and unity across the centuries and the cultures. I think that's the most fundamental thing we do. I think the other thing we gain, which is I think more serious, is we gain a sense of transcendence. These appearances cannot be reduced to our categories. No art historian, you cannot reduce it to a bunch of symbols or metaphors that other artists have used. That's not what's going on here. No scholar of religion, you cannot explain this by the Catholicism of the, of the seer or the the secularism of the, the American uh, contactee or abductee. There's something else going on that is not reducible to your categories. It's, it's outside you. It's, it's literally para. It's, it's to the side of, of your categories and your, your understanding. I think that's a tremendous win, at least for me. I mean, I want to live in that world. I do not want to live in a world that is exhausted by my categories. Hmm. That's a that's a freaking depressing world. Um, I, I All the more reason to pay yeah. close attention to ancient aliens. Well, <laughs> no, I actually think they end up reducing everything to their world. I mean, that's mm -hmm. why why I that's my big critique of them is that you people are just reducing everything to ancient astronauts. That's just your world. That's just your mythology. Just own up to that and stop it. Just stop doing that. Then I think it does get richer. And it, I think ancient aliens, I mean, they have the core idea. It's interesting. It's that there is this commonality and there is something about the UFO phenomena that, that, that can explain or can throw light on all of this religious and mythological material. But then they just kind of go nuts with it. Um, mm -hmm. And it just, 
it becomes silly. I didn't watch more than the first uh, season of that. I, I did. I did. Oh, you did? You I, stuck with it? Yeah. I watched, <laughs> I watched a lot of it. I guess it's I, your job too. Well, I always tell, I always tell my students, I said, if you want to know how to not do a comparison, go watch ancient aliens. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Great lesson how not to do it. But, but I also, I think there's insight there. And I think the reason it was so popular is people want transcendence. And, mm -hmm. and I don't mean that in a simplistic way. I don't mean there is no transcendence and people want it. So let's give it to them. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's something about the human being that recognizes transcendence. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's what, what's on the table there. And I think that, you know, so uh, Kester Bruin uh, is a theologian out of the UK. Is that right, Matt? I don't know. Uh, out of someplace. Yeah, um, and, I, I think so. Yeah. And he wrote a book called Getting High, A Savage Journey to the Heart of the Dream of Flight. Um, and something I think is really interesting that he does in that text is he brings together the, the space race of like the 1960s and, you know, the counterculture, particularly um, LSD experimentation, things along those lines. And he really kind of treats them as a single phenomenon, which I think yeah. is, is really interesting because I think what that hits on is exactly what you're talking about, right? That, or at least for him, what he wants to argue is that it's what unites these is that they're all about transcendence. And so for some people, it is going to be, you know, the Apollo missions are going to be the transcendence. For others, it's, I'm going to take a bunch of LSD in order to find transcendence. For others, it's the aliens that are going to come down from the sky and that's going to be transcendence. Or, you know, if you're a Renaissance painter, then, you know, maybe it's, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit's going to come down and bring transcendence. But there's there's that that sort of common desire for something from the outside that I think is really important here. Oh, here oh, here's something really weird. So in the 16th and 17th century, I mean, we have lots of historical accounts of people actually flying. I mean, levitation, human levitation. And the historical evidence is far, far greater than people realize. It's, in, it's embarrassingly good. And, you know, historians are beginning to look at this and say, well, what is it about flight or levitation that links to religious ecstasy and, and transcendence. There's, there's certainly a symbolism here, right? I mean, we all, we've probably all flown in our dreams, right? So we, we, I'm we, always falling in my dreams. Okay. You're falling, but <laughs> I'm, kind of, I'm kind of flying or floating. And uh, so there's something, there's something really powerfully symbolic about flight and up, up, right? Because if you're stuck on two dimensions, this this way's transcendent. So, I I do I do think it's sort of hardwired into us, you know, this this notion of, of up as as transcendence, even though of course there is no up, um, which is a whole other thing. This is kind of getting really off topic now. <laughs> Sometimes I think about this uh, this obsession with um, height or flight or whatever you want to call it is has to do with sort of hierarchies and you know in primates and who gets the top branch in the tree sort of thing um so it all kind of comes back to politics in a, in a in a weird way um but anyway that's kind of complete speculation and the kind of thing i would say if i was high which i'm not <laughs> <laughs> you know it reminds me that i was on this same trip where i went to florence i went to rome and if you go into saint peter's they actually show on the floor where all the other basilicas in the world end. And that basic idea is my, my basilica is bigger than your basilica. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so male. It's so, but it's, it's pure hierarchy, right? It's like, this is the biggest in the world. Let me show you where the others end. Yeah. Well, 
and it's not the size of the basilica. <laughs> Actually, I was surprised when you said that what we what we get from this sort of reconfigured way of approaching this question of UFOs and of aliens is community. Um, that's something I need to think more about. Another thing it raises for us is a sort of epistemological challenge. And maybe we've touched on this already, but whether it's this sort of constructivist view or materialist view, the UFO phenomenon renders these as inadequate. And that's fine. We can just kind of stop there and say, okay, it's inadequate. But how do we push beyond that? Is there a new framework for thinking? And, and, And maybe this is just my attempt to reintroduce a category to sort of pin down these troubling phenomenon. So first of all, I don't, I don't think the alien gives us community, man. I, I think the UFO phenomenon, the phenomenon itself gives us community in the simple sense that it happens everywhere and at any time and can see back. But the, the quote unquote alien, that's a modern American construction, in, in my opinion. And it doesn't give us community. In fact, it does the opposite. It others the other, you know, in a really disturbing way. In terms of the epistemological, um, I mean, this is my big critique of the UFO in popular culture or in military or government is that it's always framed as this machine in the sky and it's quote unquote a threat or a potential threat. And what's so interesting to me about the UFO phenomena is all of its paranormal aspects or its religious or spiritual components. It tends to break down this notion that we're subjects looking out at a collection of objects because it's physical but it's also spiritual at the same time and so it collapses that epistemic distinction between the subject and the object in really often traumatic ways you know john mack used to talk about ontological shock this was the main feature for him of his patients who had had these abduction experiences the reason they were so troubled was that their notion of reality now was completely mm-hmm. inadequate. No, I should say their, their, their conception of reality now was completely different than it was before the event. And they no longer fit in to Western society that has this ideal of objectivity and wants to dismiss subjectivity. And suddenly those two things are the same thing. Um, and the, 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 the result is shock, ontological which of course is epistemological shock in your terms. And I, and I think the, the way in which that's shocking, I think reveals the way in which a sort of quasi Kantian ontology still sort of runs through our culture, right? There's this, this sense that there is this very mechanistic um, phenomenal world that we are in. And if we want to talk about the spiritual, we have to think the spiritual numinally you know, it can be subjective, but it can't ever be objective because to be spiritual is is sort of definitionally, I think, within this epistemology, to be spiritual is to be non-objective. And it's also to be unreal. Right. Right. That, And that's part of our science and technology, by the way, too, Justin, is, you know, science doesn't work unless you have a subject looking at a set of stable objects. So there's a split. There's an epistemic split there right away. Yeah, so we've been touching on this split in epistemological terms, right, or ontological terms, but I wonder if something that could help in this kind of discussion is uh, radical empiricism that doesn't take pains to wave away um, experiences of various kinds, but accepts them as valid, objects isn't quite the right word, but, you know, valid objects of study. And And I think this is where, I guess, getting back to what I was 
trying to ask about is where things like religious studies, phenomenology, mysticism, psychedelic experiences, and, and so on kind of come together and overlap in this strange zone. I'm not really sure what to call it. I mean, you can say paranormal, but that seems to me like very unsatisfying in a way, just says, oh, it's just outside normal. And I, I think if you look at uh, like some of the things that you've been talking about, levitation and so on, in terms of like the aggregate experience of recorded history, it no longer becomes abnormal or paranormal, becomes more normal. And it's like this interesting sort of like, what do, what do I want to call it? Like a chiasmic structure. There's like a reversal. Like the more we normalize these things, the less we really know how to talk about them or something like that. So, okay. So a couple of things. First of all, I always push back on this notion that the paranormal is normal. Uh, I mean, look, if I walk down the hallway and somebody's floating off the ground, I'm going to fucking notice. <laughs> that is not normal. I'm sorry. And, and that's the whole point of it. It's trying to get our attention. And so to call it normal is to remove attention, essentially, in my opinion. So I, I okay. think these events are dramatic and anomalous and unusual for a reason. And I always object to people who want to make them not crazy. Um, I think they're crazy making. They're 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 bizarre. Well, they're unusual, but but I, I think if you're if you're approaching this in a sort of empirical way, right, um, and taking they're, these experiences in the aggregate, then you can kind of make that yes. case, sort of. Yes, they're, the the case that I think you're trying to make is that they're they're they can be seen cross culturally and transtemporally that's certainly true yeah um but they're always meant to shock i think and and grab attention um ask for a quick clarification there yeah so you you use the language of of meant to shock um yeah. and, and i i wonder if you could talk a little bit about who's doing the meaning there yeah. is it a phenomenon is it Something else, or are you thinking of it more metaphorically? No, no, no. I think I think these events have real intentionality behind them, Justin. And I think if you study them long enough, it's hard to avoid that suspicion. Um, the question then becomes whose intentionality and what kind of intentionality. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I suspect it's us, um, but us in a much deeper and profound way than we tend to think of us. And in terms of Matt's radical empiricism, I mean, this is really all I've tried to say is, let's put these things, let's keep them on our table. Let's make them part of the picture, no matter how extraordinary or unbelievable they are, let's keep them on the table. And therefore, whatever picture we then form from the pieces on the table is going to be more accurate to, to the actual human situation. Where I get upset is when people start taking things off the table. They're like, oh, that didn't happen. That, that can't happen. Blah, 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 blah. And pretty soon you end up with this really little card table where all the things that happen on it are things you can explain. And guess what? It always behaves the way you say it is because you just got to determine what goes on that table. But once you start putting all this other stuff on the table, guess what? It doesn't behave anymore. It doesn't work like you're saying. So I don't know who's arranging the pieces or what the intentionality is i just want us to keep those things on the table that's mm -hmm. a, that's a different argument right yeah 
I think latent in this kind of discussion in the background is the the possibility of uh, of, of a theological conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and we don't we don't necessarily need to, need to go there. I'm not interested in that necessarily, but I I am curious about connecting it to this um and maybe maybe this is a way of like pivoting into like a more contemporary media and I'm thinking of the X-Files. I want to believe I think that is a very theological statement in the way that it foregrounds desire, right? right? And that it sort of explicitly or or not so explicitly brackets out the question of the sort of veracity of belief, but right. the importance and, and centrality of desire for something to be true. I don't know. Do you want to comment on any of that? Well, my friend Diana Pasolko will often say, it doesn't say I believe. It says I want to believe. <laughs> and and, you know, The X-Files was a very paranoid series, to take it back to Eric Davis's question. Um, it was really feeding into this paranoia of the 1990s that was, was building. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, Matt. I don't know that I really asked a good question. I, I apologize. It's more. <laughs> well, here, 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 no, here's an answer to it. So I'll often say I don't believe in beliefs, but I believe in belief. You, you said that you said that the last time we spoke. and. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. I didn't follow it. Well, I say time. it a lot. I say it a lot. That's probably why I said it. You know, I just <laughs> I, I listen. I have five stories. This is what happens when you get older. I get it. You, I know. You've heard four of my stories, so there isn't a lot to say here. There's not a lot to, to pursue. But what I mean by that is is what I think you just said that belief is what forms the worlds that human beings live in. It's like the spider spinning its web. Beliefs are important. That's how the spider lives. And by the way, catches its fly. Um, but I don't sign my name to any of those webs. I, I think all those webs are, are relative to the, the culture and the history and the specificity of the time. But I do believe in the spider. I think spiders are going to spin webs wherever, wherever the spider is. So to say that I believe in be belief but not beliefs is to sort of back up and not commit oneself to a particular cultural worldview, but to acknowledge that, that human beings anywhere at any time are going to create culture. Yeah. Well, I was a big fan of the, the X-Files. I've been wanting to go back and watch it again. I'm not sure. Do you guys know where you can? I'm actually in the middle of a rewatch right now of the whole sort of X-Files universe. So I'm doing Millennium and X-Files and all the spinoffs and the movies and all of that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, it is, at times, I think it's a really stunning show. And I think particularly when it goes into the direction that you were talking about. So when it foregrounds things like desire um, and the ambiguousness, right? Right, Because this, this idea, what you said, I want to believe is the classic catchphrase. What's interesting about that is the implication of the phrase I want to believe is that I don't. The, mm -hmm. the context for the phrase I want to believe is a non-belief. Uh, and it's and it's living in that tension of belief and non-belief that I think is really profound when they when they explore that in the X Files. Uh, you're holding up a book there, Jeff. What what is that? Yeah. So Aaron John Gullius is the author. It's called The Paranormal and the Paranoid. Goes back into Eric's question again. The subtitle is Conspiratorial Science Fiction Television, and it's got a picture of of the X Files. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, right on the cover. So I again I think. The paranoid and the paranormal are very much related here. Um, I, I would say one thing that I find really interesting is the way in which, and I think it's in some sense, it's the nature of any TV show that goes on as long as X-Files did, which is that the, um, the, 
paranormal starts to lose its transcendent quality. I think the longer you get into that show, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, it starts out and it's just like, all you want in that show is like, I want to see a UFO. Uh, and then you can see a UFO. And the first time like UFOs show up, it's lights and the building shaking and it's all miraculous. But, you know, by like the sixth season, you find out, well, yeah, there's these UFOs, but they're in a fight with those UFOs and they don't like those guys and they're blah, blah. And all of a sudden it's just like, the same kind of mundane politics that's happening at our level is just happening again at another level. And that, that sort of deep transcendence sort of starts to dissolve in a way that I think is, is really fascinating. I think that, um, Justin, that's related to the disclosure movement, actually. You know, the disclosure movement, the whole premise of it is that somebody's got the secret to disclose, right? And um, I actually don't believe that. I don't, I don't think anybody knows what's it's going the, on. It's the subject supposed to know. Yeah, there's, I think, I don't know what I told you last show, but I, you know, I used to, when I was a young, like your age, I actually believed that someone somewhere had the truth. They knew the answer. And it was just a matter of reading enough books and figuring yep. out yeah, who same. that was. You're there? Were you there? Are you still there? No, 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 no. That ship has sailed. Yeah. But it's so, become more interesting. It's more fun now. Yeah, that's just not the case. That's just not true. The, no, nobody actually has the answer. And so, but that changes, that really changes how one approaches thinking and speaking and writing, because you no longer think that anybody has the final truth on things. And I think you see this in contemporary sort of paranoid movements as well. So thinking of something like QAnon, for example, at the root of this is this idea that, you know, somewhere out there, there's somebody who has all of the answers and they're going to swoop in and the storm will happen. And But then when you look at like, well, what are those answers that they have? Well, it turns out the people I don't like are bad guys and the people <laughs> I like are good guys. Right. And it's like, well, then you didn't learn anything. So why, why are you doing all of this? Right, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it has it has a prankish quality to it. I, it's just so it's just so crazy. One of the things that's interesting about the UFO uh, conversation is it's become like pretty mainstream. And a reason for that is not just things like X-Files, but because a few years ago they had these congressional and they continue to have like congressional hearings on it. It's everything short of a full admission. Like, yes, UFOs exist. Yeah, it's, it, it, that's true. And that is an advance, Matt. I, I don't want to dismiss that, but it's, it's an admission of the machine-like objective nature of the phenomenon. It's not an admission of the, subjective, yeah. spiritual, or, or paranormal aspects of the phenomenon. That's what I say in these interviews I sent you is it's, um, you know, it, it, it's an advance. It's, it's good news, but it's, it's not enough. I, I'm with you on that. I guess I'm just curious to, if we were to approach the question from a more sort of, um, at, at a more mundane level, right? And, and we see these videos of UFOs interacting with whatever fighter pilots and stuff like this taking the philosophical and theological hat off for a second like what do you think's going on there first of all as somebody who tries to do research and write in a responsible way i have to reference my sources right i have to tell you where i got this idea and so you can go to that author or book or article or podcast or whatever it is and you can check my sources I'm really struck by the fact we don't have that here. We have a series of radar returns 
we know a, a bit about their context, I guess, and we've talked to the pilots, but we actually don't have any way of accessing the original uh, videos or the fuller videos, frankly, the full the, the full context of it. And th those are all the things you would need if you were doing a simple history of, of the phenomena. I mean, I, I'm not dismissing the radar returns, but I don't trust anything I see on video anymore um, because it can all be faked. Mm -hmm. And I just don't, how am I going to know, you know? because everything's classified and everything is, there are all these walls of secrecy behind which, you know, the phenomena hide. I don't think the phenomenon's hiding, by the way. I think those walls of secrecy are protecting a particular mythology that's built up around the phenomenon. Um, so what are they? I don't know, Matt, but I'm very suspicious that we're not given access to the context and to the actual videos. Yeah. I, I may be taking um, what you were just saying a little bit out of context. And if, if so, I apologize. You can set me straight. But when you say you don't believe anything that's on video, like, am I, am I here? Am I real? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so I'm going to assume you're, I'm, I'm going to assume you're real because I know a lot about the context of this conversation and I've got, okay. I even got beer from you for God's sake. So I, but I have, how do you know? How do you know that was from me? <laughs> let, okay, let me put it this way. I am much more comfortable saying I know that you exist in this interview than I am saying that I know that those Tic Tacs exist on that radar. I don't know that. Yeah, fair. Don't. Not, not, not possible. Um, yeah, maybe you're a bot, Matt. Maybe you don't exist. Maybe, but you sure look like you do to me. I've had that thought before. Um, and my previous co-host on the show actually thought for, was convinced that I was a CIA operative. <laughs> yeah. Well, I miss I you, Preston. I miss too. you, Preston. I love you, bud. Yeah. I've heard that one too, particularly about scholars of religion. By the way. Some of whom may, may, maybe they are. I don't know. <laughs> so I, I wonder if I could do a little pivot at this point in the conversation to so we've been talking a lot about maybe the, the negative framing we talked quite a bit about at the beginning, right? So this invasion narratives and Cold War paranoia. And I, and I think that's really kind of been an, animating a lot of this conversation. I'm also really interested in your thoughts on the sort of techno-futurist kind of way. Uh, so I think, uh, I believe it's next week, we're going to be interviewing uh, Am uh, Gitlitz, uh, who wrote I Want to Believe, which is a book on positive. <laughs> We're ready. Is, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You got it too. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, and he's looking at a specific movement. So positivism was, uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but was a left-wing Trotskyist movement that sort of went down a UFO kind of path. But at the center of it is this belief that, yes, UFOs are real. Yes, they're aliens. And if they come, um, they will be our liberators, right? And I think that you can see a kind of a similar logic to the logic of transhumanism, for example, this idea that if there's transcendence, it's something that's going to break in from the outside and it's going to save us from how bad things are. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, that other way of approaching that, that sort of, you know, I, I, I want the spaceships to come because they're going to save us. Yeah, so there's actually a big book called UFOs and Nukes. You know, it goes on for 400 pages just outlining all of the UFOs that appeared around nuclear missile silos and then like shut, shut them off or frustrated experimental flights. So, you know, there is some evidence that, well, and the UFO, by the way, really comes into the fore after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, immediately after. So there is this link between 
the development of nuclear bombs and the UFO phenomena, and it takes on both apocalyptic and ecological components very quickly. So what would I say about that? First of all, I don't know. I mean, I kind of hope that. <laughs> I mean, I hope they're going to screw with our nuclear capabilities and prevent us from blowing everything up. I mean, to me, that's a pretty positive way of looking at it. Um, on the other hand, it all sounds very religious to me. You know, some gods coming from the sky to save us from ourselves. Wow, that's about as religious as it gets right there. And we've been there before. You know, human beings have believed this for millennia uh, in different forms. So I'm suspicious of it on one level. On another level, I do understand it. And I can see how, you know, maybe it's true. I mean, what would I know? How would I know? You know, I'm just a little... I'm just a little monkey, hairless monkey, you know, living in Houston, Texas. What what the hell do I know? That's a great bio, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but unfortunately, it's true. It's like, it's pretty accurate. Um, and this is why I love the UFO phenomena. It's not because I understand it, it's because I don't understand it. I think it boggles mm -hmm. us. I think it totally boggles the primate brain and sends all of our categories into dust. I just think it just demolishes them. So speaking of, of categories, so you, you just somewhat negatively, I think you, you use the language of, of religious and, and you talked earlier about your um, frustration, maybe, I don't know if that's the best word for it, around uh, the more recent disclosures that they haven't addressed the spiritual. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you're using spiritual versus religious in this context. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's interesting. I so okay. I think paranormal phenomena are what I call proto-religious. I think they're the human experiences that are universal and that become the building blocks, as it were, of basic religious beliefs, like the separation of the soul from the body or the survival of bodily death or like trip reports. Trip reports would be proto-religious too, actually, in this in this context. I wouldn't call any of these religious until they're expressed in a framework that's been institutionalized and, and has some kind of cultural recognition and shape to it. Mm -hmm. And th this is why I'm so interested in people's extraordinary experiences is because they're often proto-religious. They don't actually fit in to the cultures the person happens to inhabit. Um, they represent potential or future forms of culture and religion, but they're certainly not religious yet. Um, so generally, you know, I'll use the word spiritual to mean something like proto-religious, some kind of experience of, of, of a transcendent realm that hasn't yet taken on a recognizable form or system. And I'll use religion in a, in a way that assumes that system or that, that culture form. And by the way, I don't think of religion negatively. Um, again, I don't inhabit a religion because I don't think any of them can explain everything. On the other hand, religion is the best tool we have to pass on a set of beliefs and experiences from generation to generation. And I think we, particularly today, we vastly underestimate that. Mm. So I, I'm ambivalent about it, Matt. I, I don't idealize my choices, but I do. That's how I think of those two terms. You've talked a lot about the sort of cross-temporal, cross-cultural nature of this sort of phenomena. Would, would you 
make an argument that the spiritual or pre-religious um uh, that there's sort of one pre-religious soil from which the various yeah. religions are coming, that there's something unified about that? Yeah, is that a kind of perennialism, I, I suppose? Yeah, so I, I would make that argument. I, I'm, I don't consider myself a perennialist because, in my view, what perennialism argued, what it argues is that the world religions intend some singular revelation or transcendence, and that, that's what they're all moving towards. I don't think religions intend the same thing at all. I think religions intend entirely opposite or contradictory things, but I think there nevertheless is a universal human component to all these systems. Mm -hmm. And that's why, again, I'm so interested in the paranormal is because I think it is the proto building blocks of all of these different systems. It's what you get before them. So just to add to this, this is another level. I think when mostly young people say today, I'm spiritual, but not religious, it's mostly a moral protest. It's a placeholder. They don't know what the hell they're talking about in terms of being spiritual. They really don't. But they know they don't want to sign on to the dogmas and, and, and intolerances of the religious traditions they've grown up in. And it's usually around gender and sexuality or, or race. Not always, but usually. So I think in that context spiritual and religious function differently than i'm trying to use it here but i i think it it's probably related i mean i actually i think it's different they're, they're different things mm -hmm. i think there's a certain section which you're what you're saying is true that these kinds of uh, experiences the the paranormal and so on are pre-religious or proto-religious um and that they precede what we would call the religious impulse or a sort of congealed form of spirituality or something like this right but yeah. Um, I'm someone who who's interested in political theology, and I think there's a, a countervailing or maybe a complementary thread that reads religion as a mirror of politics. And I think these both can be true at the same time. And I think it becomes really difficult once you start talking about um, lines of causation. It's one of the interesting things about religion is I think it just uh, maybe this is kind of one of the things we're pointing toward in different ways is that it disrupts those lines of causation in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, I talk and write a lot about what I call the humanist too. And I, I don't mean there are two things that compose a human being, but I mean, there there's us, there's our social egos that we're, we're inhabiting right at this moment. At least I am. Maybe you're ecstatically transcendent at the moment. I don't know. Um, but then there's this larger kind of conscious field that we also sometimes have access to. And that what religion is, is this interface between this political or social ego and this, this transcendent conscious field. And there's not one way to relate those. You know, there, there's, there's infinite ways to relate those, including denying completely this, this transcendent field and just saying, I'm just, I'm this, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, you know, I hope it's fairly capacious way of looking at it because I really do want to understand how people and communities relate those two, two levels in completely different ways. And, and I think this, this links back well to our discussion, you know, a few months ago in the sense that, that I think the filter thesis, for example, links up, I think could very easily link up to this, right? So that, that the way that you, Matt, were, were linking up sort of political 
ideologies and and sort of religious thinking the ways that you can see some sort of commonalities across those i think right that that can make sense through the lens of something like the filter thesis right that there are there are certain ways that are politically um you know that we experience as politically advantageous to filter in certain ways and not filter in other certain ways for example i also think i mean i don't remember what we talked about this summer so if i repeat myself just pretend we remember every word yeah just, just pretend, <laughs> pretend i didn't repeat myself i to me this is what the 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 christian theologians have been arguing about for centuries about the human and divine natures you know that and how to relate those. And there's been many, many ways to relate humanity and divinity, you know, even in that one tradition. Uh, I mean, there are Christian traditions that see Jesus as basically a, a good social prophet. I mean, it's it's all human. And then there are traditions in which he is a just a total deity and his humanity is kind of kind of irrelevant. Um, and you know, you've got everything in between. And so I'm not arguing for one of those Christological positions. I'm saying, look, those are all options and those all come into play. They're different. all on the table. They're all on the table. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. All right. Well, we've, everything's on the table and um, <laughs> it's a, it's a smorgasbord and it's a feast that none of us will enjoy because we're not committing to any of these options. <laughs> Well, okay, so I'm committing to the fact that they're on the table. No, it's lovely. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a neutral, I don't, I'm not a neutral agnostic kind of guy. I'm like, no, this, these things happen. That, that's, that's where I'm at. Yeah, that's fair. Is there anything else, uh, Justin, that you wanted to touch on? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm good. This is a really, um, edifying <laughs> conversation really 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 fun in a lot of ways um and i appreciate you you know thinking it was worth your time to talk to us again oh of course man of course i i, I really enjoyed it and i hope i hope it was useful I hope something we we talked about was advances the the ball a little for some someone somewhere the lord works in mysterious ways <laughs> <laughs> that indeed is true <laughs> well have a good one let's let's talk again soon Okay, let's do that. Take care. All right, man. Bye. In your mind, you have capacities, you know, to telepath messages through the vast unknown. Please close your eyes and concentrate with every thought you think. Upon the recitation we're about to sing Calling occupants of interplanetary craft Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft
Send a message. 